to me, the heart inflation is the hardest thing to protect you. It's protecting yourself against inflation is like no different than trying to get rich. It's just, it's difficult, right? Yeah. It's like, sure. It's trying to predict w what are the most valuable things. It's so protecting yourself against inflation is what we're all already trying to do all the time. Just there's more pressure. Right, episode thirty-seven of the Do Less podcast. We've got Brendan, Jeff, and John here. How are you doing today, fellas? We're worried, man. Deuces up. Why but, are you still listening? Get a job. Get a hobby. <laughs> do something yeah. else. Yeah, can't figure out why any of you are listening. But anyway, <laughs> so guys, I read read and listened to the news for the first time today, and I keep hearing this word inflation. <laughs> All I heard them talking about is how prices are increasing and. I guess maybe that seems true. I've been spending a lot of money on food and drinks recently, but what is this inflation stuff everyone's talking about? Inflation is when you move to New York City and <laughs> <laughs> everything costs four times as much. That is relatable. So I think everyone just moved to New York City and that's why the prices have gone up. <laughs> So what's this inflation stuff everyone's talking about? Start <laughs> here. John, you tell us. Well, you gotta you gotta make things that are valuable, and people will pay them pay you for them. But if you don't make things that are valuable, and people have a lot of money, all the people are, with money are gonna bid on the things that are valuable. And it's gonna get expensive because find a man. <laughs> 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 the worst explanation of inflation you could possibly give. So um, what we know from uh, Econ 101, prices uh, tend to be dictated by supply and demand, right? So if prices are going up, and that's what people are calling this whole inflation business, doesn't that have to mean either supply is being constrained or demand is going up? Is that what this inflation means? I would agree with that. However... I got a beef with macroeconomics because I think what you said is true, but only true for single goods. Like you can look at one good at a time, but you can't look at many at a time because the concept of demand as a whole, like aggregate demand, that concept in macroeconomics, I think that's a nonsense concept because how do you actually measure demand across everybody, right? Like aggregating across everybody, that's, there's no budget constraint. Like my demand is a reflection of my budget, right? So like I can, you know, depending on how much I produce, I can consume a certain amount. So it's like aggregate demand is a function of aggregate supply because that is our budget constraint. So you can't, I think actually the, the concept of aggregate demand as independent from supply actually doesn't make any sense because theoretically my demand without a constraint is unlimited. Like, you know, I, if I would get a million Ferraris and seven mansions and whatever else I could, I wouldn't just like be like, Oh, it's, you know, I don't know if I'm feeling as much demand lately if I have no constraint. 
So really, when the aggregate is concerned, what matters is supply. So when we're talking inflation, we're talking in aggregates. So to me, the relevant variable here is always supply when you're talking mm -hmm. about inflation. I'm, you can increase the budget constraint, that aggregate demand by, you know, I said it's a nonsense comment, but if you print money, then essentially you've increased budget constraint without increasing supply. And so all you've really done is you haven't changed the supply, but now people can, there's more money around to buy things. So really what matters is the supply of money and the supply of goods. As far as aggregates to certain, like demand, I don't feel like is super relevant. Jeff, let me say that in another way and correct me if this isn't, if I think this is saying the same thing, but just in another way. Um, you can't stimulate demand. Like people, you hear like mainstream econo economists talking about, oh, we needed to stimulate demand or else we would have gone into a depression. It's like, people don't demand things because you wanted them or because like, you can't just snap your fingers and people will demand things like Jeff, I think was getting to, it's like a trade off, right? I demand this because I have enough of this and then I have enough of all this stuff. And then, so I have a, you know, a, we as a group, we as a population have a demand for that next marginal good, but stimulating demand is a, it's a fallacy. And what you've done is you've lowered the relative. <laughs> yeah. What you've done is you've lowered the relative price by giving people more money than they had. They have more purchasing power than they had. And therefore this, the trade-offs are, they, f they fall on a different ratio than they were before. The demand was always there. The demand existed, you know, in that trade-off calculation, but until they got that stimulus, like stimulating their demand, once they got a stimulus check, they've, they've now, it lowered the relative price compared to other kind of th other things. Is that kind of, is that different or yeah. is kind of what you're well, saying? No. So like basically the only trade-off for demand in aggregate is savings, right? So it's, you know, if you have a constraint, you can either save what you earned or you can buy goods with what you earned. So it's like, you know, the, if aggregate demand goes up, it's because they're dropping savings. Like that's like sort of right. like the inventory level, but if we don't like save anything, so right. it's like, it's just completely dependent on, um, how much money is available. So it's kind of obvious what's going to happen if you print money is just, there's going to be more money chasing fewer goods. Mm -hmm. So let me get this straight. What you're saying is when on the micro level in between me and you trading supply and demand likely to dictate our price of whatever our transaction is. If I want to buy some headphones from you, you're going to price them to whatever I, I can afford and however many I want might dictate the price depending on how many you have available. But on the macro level and take the US for example, so nationally you're saying we're going to always want about the same amount of goods per person. Everyone's still using the same amount of toilet paper to wipe in their ass the same amount, unless people are deciding to save more. But what's more likely changing prices and making prices increase are a couple of factors. One being a change in supply. So if there's less 
goods available, which could be caused by supply chain shortages that we're having through the coronavirus, like we talked about with our episode with our good friend Paul Rogowski. If there's less toilet paper available, the price is going to go up because the same amount of demand is there, but now there's more people com- competing for less of the goods. So whoever's going to pay the most for it's going to get it. So one factor could be the supply has gone down, but demand has stayed the same, so price has increased. Alternatively, if the supply and demand hasn't changed and it's been steady, but now everyone has more money through, let's say, something like stimulus checks or, or some other you know way that the government or some other form is putting more money in people's pockets, there's just more money out there to be spent. And so people can afford or are willing to pay more money to compete over goods. Is that right? Yeah. But so the reason I'm saying like, um, like on the micro level, that makes sense is because right for demand for a single good to go up, that's easily understood. Essentially what people have done is they're buying less of other things in order to get more of this things. Like demand is a relative concept, right? So demand for an aggregate is like, okay, as opposed to what, right? And the only other thing you can really do with money is save it other than demand it. And, you know, saving levels do fluctuate, but not in a significant way. Like I get like in a recession, people will tend to save more, but there's a reason for that. And so if you try to like stimulate out of it, you're just going to have less productivity with more money out there chasing the fewer goods. So to me, when people are like, oh, people came out of the pandemic and they're, you know, demanding more, it's, it's like demanding more of what? Everything? Probably not. They probably just changed how they spent their money. Maybe people save more, but it was likely that they spent more on, you know, goods shipped to their house and less on other things. So really like demand is more of like a relative concept. It's like it can shift between stuff but it doesn't like as an aggregate it probably doesn't change up and down very much what does change significantly is the supply and so to me that's really the relevant variable here like there is the money printing but i think people might be getting ahead of themselves by sort of declaring that this is the like the so the cpi for example they said which is a measure of like a basket of goods over time. How much does it cost? And they call it, they create an index out of that. And that number was up like 6%, which is the highest it's been in 30 years. That's why everyone's talking about inflation now. Um, I don't see those baskets of goods that they track as being yet significantly uh, affected by the amount of money printing that has been done because usually when the fed prints money, it goes to like banks and then banks buy assets and equities and real estate. And so the inflation tends to stay in those pockets and then slowly leak out into other things. Well, let's, so I think the inflation, hold on, let's get to there in a second. Before that, I have a question. When you say you said the sentence, like demand relatively stays the same, how would that, and I'm asking you, I don't actually know how the, how you would answer this how do how do you consider like a economy that's like demanding 
like consumption, like pure consumption. So it's like every day there's a lot of spending, but that spending is, you know, it has to recur as opposed to, it's, you know, durable goods or, um, you know, is it, is when you say demand is constant or you said something along well, those lines, I mean, it's relative, right? So like to give you a simple example, if you're on a desert Island alone, what's your demand? It's whatever you can produce. It's identical to aggregate demand is aggregate supply. They're one in the same. Mm -hmm. So in that simple example, it shows you they're actually the same thing. So you can increase the complexity of it, right? Add two people. Okay. What's aggregate demand. Okay. It's still whatever you guys produce, you can move it around between you, but ultimately it's what you guys produce. You can put some savings away and that wouldn't be considered demand, but in some sense, like there's not a huge trade-off there. Like whatever you're building ultimately is going to get consumed. If you're, I don't know, building a house that's still like at some point you might trade the house to the other guy or you'll just say in it yourself, but either way, that's not a good metric of what's going on. Like tracking demand isn't really a good way to track what's going on on that island, right? What's go a good way to track is okay. What did you guys make, mm -hmm. right? What's the supply? So I, all I'm saying is demand at an aggregate level is a function of supply. So you can't really treat it like it's its own variable. Yeah. Like you, ha you know, cause savings are ultimately just supply that didn't get consumed. Mm -hmm. So you, there's a trade off between aggregate demand and savings, but savings are just things that got produced that didn't get consumed. So that aggregate is just a function of the supply. So supply is really, when you're looking at like a macro economic perspective, the most relevant variable, which I believe the supply was significantly affected by COVID. So if you want to go back to listen to our episode with Rogo, Paul Rogowski, he went into a lot of detail why obviously people drop supply in many things that people normally spend on um, due to the coronavirus. And when they try to scale back up, it's difficult to do that because some of that supply gets retired or some of those capital investments get retired and they're not easily replaced. So what happens is we're producing at a lower level now, but there's still the same amount of money out there. That's what I believe to be causing the inflation. I think you nailed it when you said, um, there is like, demand is a, a function of supply. So, and it goes back to what I, what I was saying about, um, <clears throat> I was saying, uh, you can, people try to like mainstream economists try to say that, Oh, we're just going to stimulate demand. And then once there's a higher demand, then supply will grow to reach that demand. But it's like, that's the cart before the horse. Like you have to, like, once you, by the point you've, you've stimulated demand, there either are goods or there aren't <laughs> like the, right. the supply is there or not. And once you've, once you've stimulated that people make their future expectations based on that stimulus occurring, but that, but that now they have to say, is that going to continue to occur? Is it going to change? They have to make entrepreneurial decisions. And that's what the whole, that's what that's supply. Supply is entrepreneurs making entrepreneurial decisions. That's economics. Like, Everything stems from that. You can't just say, "Oh, we we want to, you know, we want a great society, so we want to uh, print a bunch of money or make, 
you know, you know we're going to make people wealthier by giving them dollar bills. And once they have those dollar bills, well, people are going to make so many goods to get those dollar bills. And it's like, no, it's the other way around. <laughs> right. right. And to like expand, like if you go back to the, the desert island example, it's like, okay, how are we going to stimulate demand for smartphones? It's like, you can't. You're never going to be able to make one on a desert island. So it's like, there's no way to increase demand for goods that you can have no hope to produce. So it's like, you know, or if you wanted to stimulate demand for fish, was that even, that doesn't really mean anything. You just got to go catch right. more fish, you know? Right. So it's like, right. the, you have to make the stuff in order to demand the stuff. Mm -hmm. The trade happens at the, you know, instance of the good existing. So when I cut you off, you, you're, you're going into how, um, you know, to date, the, the Federal Reserve has expanded their balance sheet. They've eased um, to the point of accumulating nearly $8 trillion uh, worth of assets in, uh, you know, treasury bonds. So that's what they're holding. And the way they got that is they printed money, exchanged, they, they printed dollar bills, they exchanged dollar bills for treasury bills on, and treasury uh, bonds on the open market. So they've accumulated over eight trillion, or almost eight trillion. It's probably gonna be eight trillion before January 1st, uh, 2022. Um, and so that excess uh, liquidity that they pumped in through quantitative easing is what I'm describing. Uh, it went from a balance sheet of less than one trillion as of um, probably around 2007 to now it's almost eight trillion, you know, just about you know less than 15 years later. Um, and so you, what, what you were going towards is that money that was pumped in to and that, that went directly to the banks because those are the only the banks, the primary dealers specifically. There's like 50 entities, the biggest banks that you can think of. Um, they're the ones that, that can be counterparty to, to that transaction. So they're receiving those dollars in, injected in. And you were saying that they, I mean, they have investment bank uh, subsidiaries, right? So mm -hmm. when they have higher reserves, it's like, oh, nice. Look at, that's like you looking at your checking account going from $500 to $50,000. Well, what are you gonna do? Well, you might make some purchases if you have an investment bank arm of your person that can, you know, you know, realize excess yields beyond, let's say, you know, beat the market by 10% because you're making the market, um, you will just use that money to continue to make the market and uh, continue to, to um, harness the growth of the stock market. So that's what you're saying. So that money goes into stocks and uh, and housing um, and you know assets. So the asset prices, which are prices, they're not measured in the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. They're uh, not really tracked on any kind of indi indicator. But assets have been going up directly in line with that. Um, what I was saying with that eight trillion eight trillion dollar growth of the Fed balance sheet. The uh, Asset prices, stocks, and, and other like housing has gone up. So that's what you're going up, going, going to say. Yeah. So like my point was like I'm seeing a lot of people doing like victory laps, being like, 
you know, the Fed printing all this money and being like, oh, yeah. look, CPI is high now and right. Biden inflation and all like and they're just I feel like they're feel as though they've been proven right about everything they're saying. But I, I think people are getting ahead of themselves because I think the inflation that the Fed causes, which is real and I, in my opinion, very destructive to the economy is destructive in a different way than a lot of people are talking about. I think the CPI inflation is much more likely due to the pandemic than the actual Fed inflation. The Fed inflation, when banks get a bunch of money, they, like you said, they buy equities, they buy real estate, they buy whatever. And then eventually that money turns into income for average people who will buy more stuff. But a lot of those people that are getting that money as income, they're not buying more milk or whatever, you know, it's like, that's not <laughs> going to cause inflation in the CPI most likely. Eventually it will. But I, in my opinion, it's, there's like a lag effect, right? You can imagine like pouring water into a bucket with a hole in the bottom, right? The hole in the bottom is, you know, controlling the rate at which all that new water in the bucket is coming out. So in my opinion, the bucket's filling up faster than it's leaking, right? And where we're seeing that inflation is, to give you an example, the S&P has doubled since its lows in March, which was like March 2020, right? 2020, yeah. Um, yeah, which was like, you know, kind of like right in the midst of the pandemic when like lockdowns were most severe. The S&P has doubled since then, okay? And I there's just absolutely no way the productivity of our economy has doubled since then. It's just, right. that's absurd. There's no there's no chance of that. So to me, that is purely inflationary. That's due to the Fed, for sure. And that will find its way into the real economy. But I, I think people are getting, because, you know, a lot of people talk to talk about this inflation, the Fed always go, oh, it's transitory, you know, whatever, don't worry about it. Um, it may actually, like, come back down. And if it does, everyone who was doing, like, victory laps, and saying, no, this is all the Fed, no, this is whatever, but it comes back down because, you know, supply gets back to normal and prices come down relatively, but there's still this massive Fed-blown asset bubble over here in the corner that they're not measuring. Every, like, MMT people are suddenly going to, like, look really smart, and everyone who is saying, you know, Austrian, right. whatever, is going to look like an idiot. Yeah, yeah <laughs> using yeah. a monthly CPI print to, to prove your... 10-year macroeconomic, the 10-year macroeconomic right. thesis. It's like, look at, oh, look, we were right this whole time. It's like, no, well, you were right, but not because, you know, this isn't why. Like, right. I, I thought yeah. the same thing. And I want to, uh, well, I'll let you, Dale, if you have a question. I want to, I want to say something on what Jeff said, but yeah, I think before we dive into something like modern uh, monetary theory and things like that, <laughs> oh, I'll bring yeah. it back to Earth for a second, and so. <laughs> Okay, so prices are going up, but maybe it's transitory because there's supply chain issues from the coronavirus or whatever. And so I could ask, all right, well, why should I care, right? I think one example, uh, one thing that comes to mind for me that's somewhat concerning as a problem that comes arises out of inflation is that inflation hurts worse for poor people. The people at the bottom get hurt the worst by inflation for the following example. So as 
as you said, when inflation happens, asset prices increase in their value, right? So people holding stocks, people holding real estate, things that are large, expensive assets that people can park money into increase in value. And so whether you're a wealthy individual or a business or a big bank, all of your assets are now more valuable. And you'll say, okay, so prices went up. So my stock portfolio's value went up. The value of my house went up. Great. That doesn't seem so bad, even though I got to spend more money at the grocery store. But a huge percentage of Americans at the bottom don't hold or own any assets. And so maybe their car value went up, but even a lot of people are leasing their car. And so those people are living that are living paycheck to paycheck are spending all of their money at the grocery store, you know, on healthcare, childcare, all those things. Those prices are strictly increasing. And if it's increased 6%, like you said, over what, what is it, the last year increased 6%? Year if that year over year, it's increased. The monthly data, 6%. by the way, you didn't mention this. The monthly data increased at a rate of eleven percent. Um, yeah, but and so unless unless month, people's uh, unless those people's wages are increasing at that same rate, that just is less money in the pocket of of poor people at the bottom, and that leads to even more wealth inequality in our nation. So that's why I could see that as being a problem. Um, but again, I'll bring it back to if it's transitory, maybe that means uh, it'll be okay over the next you know five or so years, things will level back to normal. Um, but I think you were starting to lead towards another point of why that may not be the case. Well, before um, I want to, I, I want to I, I uh, kind of. There's an important point that um, I don't want to you know like pick on you, Dale, because it's it's honestly the sure. way that. Um, it's the it's our language. It's what people say when they say, "Oh, your stock portfolio is going up. It's increasing in value." It was what you said. Right. Like you said, like value, like a bunch of times. Um, sure. And it's like, has it increased in value? Because and that's one. Right. That's the that's the thing that Jeff would. So it's said mistaking too. value with price. Exactly. So yeah, when when people say like, "Oh, like there's a six percent increase in houses." So your house has gone up in six percent. Your value, the house value, has gone up in six percent. It's like, has it gone up in six percent in the last year? Right. In fact, it's probably gone down. You know, if there's a leaky <laughs> right. pipe in the basement, or if there's a, you know, if you haven't maintained it, you know, it could have gone up. But there's probably a relative price uh, that you put into it. You know, that was, uh, you know, relevant towards that price increase. Oh, I added a. There's an add-on. There's a. There's a deck now, that cost me. You know, twelve thousand dollars to put on, and mm -hmm. the price went up by thirteen thousand. So you could say the value increase. You know, the value did increase in that scenario. So, I, right. again, I, it's not that I'm like, but that's the thing. People talk about value as if like, oh, my Dogecoin just went up. You know, it doubled in the last you know two, two hours. So the value just got crazy. You know, but it's like <laughs> value is very different from price. Price, yeah. Right, price is what you pay. Value is what you get. Um, yeah, it's so, a Warren Buffett quote. Yeah. Credit your sources, John. No, Jeff, I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna get us pulled from yeah. YouTube <laughs> for yes. plagiarism. Um, which is the, I know that, I know uh, one Professor Kaiser who would have a lot to say about that as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's actually what I. That's actually the first time I read that when I was reading one of Kaiser's papers. Um, but then I went on to learn that was a Buffett quote. But um, 
Yeah, and then Jeff, that's what you said. Something you said the stock market increased. It, it went up by it, it doubled in the last year over like a little bit over a year, and the productivity hasn't gone up that much. And while the stock market is an indicator of productivity because um, the stock market is the you know net claims on uh, earning potential of U.S. companies, so the more productive the companies are. Uh, the more earning potential there is. So there is a, there is a connection there. Um, but to, for it to double and the, pre, and the production to not increase by double, what, what is it, you know, what it literally is saying, like the stock, stock prices are the net present value of claims on the future earnings of, you know, these legal entities. That's what a stock is. So the, the collection of all stocks in the stock market, you know, we measure that as the S&P index, um, for that to double, that means that, you know, humans are expecting the net present value of these corporations earning flow over the next, their lifetime, right? Because you only care about the earnings of a stock in your lifetime, because once it earns more after you're gone, it doesn't matter to you because you've already passed it on or you, well, I guess it does matter. It does matter to you then because if you pass it on to someone you love, you want them to continue earning. So there, I mean, that's all included in the net present value calculation. Mm. So, so it's all about love. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so um, there's twice as much love in the system. In the past year, so keep on, keep on, keep, keep up the good work, everybody. <laughs> Two um, times zero is still zero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm kind of rambling, but you get what I mean. It it's it has that right. hasn't happened. No, that's a fair criticism of what I said. It's, it's yeah. You don't just look at the current productivity, but do, should we expect double the collective future earnings today compared to last year? Like, right. No, no one thought Probably the pandemic was going to last forever. <laughs> but no one thought it was going to last forever. So there was no reason to expect half as much earning potential one year ago as today that just doesn't yeah. that doesn't add up to me right so to me the only explanation for that is the inflation right that's in i agree with that i definitely agree with that i i was just being particular with the language no that's though, fair not right yeah it's a useful that's a lesson. criticism yeah just to go just go back to my point when people talk people exchange price for value in an efficient market, you know, that's what it's approximating. Price is approximating value. Uh, but when you have central planning interventionists, it's anything but an efficient market. <laughs> so you get price signals are very far uh, removed from, um, from value signals. And, and here's an example, right? Uh, in a pandemic, you know, in a, you know, in a free market pandemic, Savers are the ones that will um, select what, uh, what, where resources are allocated, right? Because savers are the only ones with anything in a pandemic because everyone has to stay home. So who can transact? Well, you have to have something in on your person. You can't go out and you know bargain for anything. You have to. What do you have to give? Because no one's producing anything. So in a pandemic, if you have anything saved, you are the one that gets to go out and say. I ha well, go out, you know, exchange in some way, in some social distanced way in the in the pandemic. 
um, after you got your vaccine. Uh, and just like that, we got demonetized. <laughs> Actually, I guess you could t- technically I'm advocating for the vaccine in that scenario. So uh, we're, we're still good to go. Cash and checks. Um, so if you have if you have savings at that point, you can go out and you can say, oh, you're somebody who you stored food. I stored uh, water, you know, we're. The, the people with savings will continue to transact in the way they want to. But in a pandemic with a central planning interventionist, what did they do? They said, anybody who is currently employed, you're going to keep getting paid if you stay home. We're going to, as long as the, your employer keeps you employed and you don't have to go to work or anything, you just stay home and you keep getting a paycheck. Well, they've taken the role as the saver in that economy. And they said, we have all the resources, so we're doling out to the people who are staying home playing video games, you know? So that just goes to show you like in a really um, constrained market, what's valuable, food, water, those people with those things, they have a lot of benefit to be had because they have, they set the price essentially. Everyone's trying to get what they have. But in a pandemic where the central planner is uh, acting as the saver, um, they're helping out they're making marginally better the people that aren't necessarily uh, contributing anything at all, right? They're just um, kind of benefiting from the fact that they have an employment, you know, they're, they're one of the lucky ones that gets to uh, keep their paycheck, stuff like that. I right. that was a quick I mean, example. That was actually very long. Sorry. Your, your example was uh, slightly hyperbolic because I don't think the food supply was really affected that much, but... Um, in terms of like other stuff, I would for sure agree. Um, like things like Ubers went way up in price, right? Cause no one wanted to drive Uber and get sick or whatever. So the people willing to do that theoretically should be getting a lot more of the pie because they're taking a lot more risk and there's a lot lower supply. But the problem is when you're just paying people, even if they don't do anything, what you've done is you've socialized the profits that would have otherwise gone to the people who continued to risk, take risks and earn and do and produce what people still needed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jeff, how I would phrase what you were talking about. My example right. is me. I, I stored food and water. No one wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff, what like, you're saying is like, central uh, planners. Like, like Uber prices did go up, you know, when there was less drivers out there and the few that were taking risks maybe got a little bit more, but the prices should have gone up even more starkly. Um, but they almost didn't because people could just stay at home and collect a paycheck that was coming from the government as opposed to uh, being forced to either work and balance prices back out and, you know, go drive Uber or do something else. Um, you're saying it um, more greatly benefited the person who was staying at home because they weren't trading that off. They weren't trading off, uh, you know, work for well, for not getting paid. It's not that the the prices, the prices actually probably did still go up, but it's just that right. the people that are staying home are getting access to the goods while not have contributed anything. They just got the money mm-hmm. without actually doing anything. So that's kind of the problem, right? Is now that Uber driver got the money, but the guy who paid him didn't actually make anything. 
So now when he goes out and tries to spend it, he's running into the inflation, right? Because the, like, the supply of other stuff didn't go up is essentially what I'm trying to say. So I think that's why there's like there seems to always be like a lag effect, right? Because basically, first the supply is constricted, and then people start to essentially sh like the shortages cause the prices to go up, right? When someone runs out of something, then they raise the price, right? Because they don't people tend it, like it's not markets aren't like super efficient, right? Where what generally happens is an, a producer prices something and then based on the sales of what they priced, they'll get a demand, right? And if they just sell out all immediately, then they'll either just make a bunch more or if they can't, they'll just raise the price because they can, right? And so that's te that tends to be the mechanisms that price rise. So there is somewhat of like a delay. And that's why like, you know, immediately prices didn't, go up when the pandemic first hit it took some time there's also inventories that people like can draw down on so that's why i think it took a year to start to notice the effects of that supply cuts like a perfect example is the ps5 <laughs> for anyone who wanted one of those they sold out immediately then there was a chip shortage for whatever reason maybe just not as many people going to work maybe it's bitcoin i don't know but the price of one, like a PS5 now on the secondary markets double what it was at retail because just no one can get their hands on one. They're not able to make it as much. Also, my hot take is that it kind of, what does it say if you can just stop production in an economy and not experience any uh, like significant inflation for like a period of a year, like you're saying, like that means that you don't produce a lot. <laughs> It means you import a lot. <laughs> so if you're right. so if you're importing just as much or more, if you're able to, uh, that means that you're fine. You don't have to produce. You can just sit at home and, and consume if 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 you if you're able to import. Um, but yeah, so you have to uh, you have to you have to produce before you can consume. And so if you are consuming and you haven't produced that relative amount then somebody else is subsidizing you. <laughs> right. What's wrong with that? And <laughs> I mean, nothing if you're getting subsidized, but eventually the people we keep sending dollars to are going to be like, why do I keep accepting these? Yeah. They, I can't buy anything with them. And by that, the, by that, you mean foreign uh, goods that we're importing? Yeah, for the yeah. most part. Like that's where a lot of the dollars go is foreign businesses accept them for goods that we purchase from them. And then what do they do with them? They buy treasuries with them because those will yield more dollars. And so they keep buying into this dollar system because we don't actually export anything. So the only thing they can buy with those dollars is like our financial assets and stuff like that. So that's how we get the dollars back is they buy our financial assets. But once people are like, I, why do I, why do I keep buying into this dollar system? Why am I doubling down over and over again? Once that mentality changes, it's going to be very hard to keep inflation down because if there's a huge reserve of dollars amongst people who are saving them, 
as soon as they expect those dollars to have lower value, they're going to just start spending them now. And you'll have a huge supply shock of dollars all at once. And that's based on expectations. And that's why you see like the Federal Reserve will never admit that inflation is bad because they they understand what could that could cause is there's inflation there's inflation expectations if they can keep people expecting inflation to be just be transitory don't worry the dollar's fine everything's good we'll get it under control but don't actually do anything to to fix that they're just hoping to like kind of kick the can down the road and just hope no one notices but as soon as those expectations change that creates sort of like a feedback loop right because if i don't expect dollars to have value. I'm going to go out and spend all my dollars now. If I spend all my dollars now, the supply of dollars in cir- like in circulation goes up, which causes prices to go up, which causes inflation expectations to go up, which causes even more people to s- spend their dollars. And that's sort of like a a positive feedback loop that is very disastrous that I think the yeah. Fed is trying to avoid. So you're saying the Fed the Fed knows something they're not telling us. I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> it's because it, so they're, they're worried about uh, public sentiment and, and yeah, because they're not dumb. I don't think they're dumb. Yeah, they're, no, I don't <clears> think they're dumb either. I want to say an example of that I think it's the one Peter Schiff uses, uh, or a similar one that he uses. But it's like if you had a a clothing store that issues uh, gift cards, right? And so you go and you have a gift card to this clothing store, and you know you buy their clothes, you like their clothes. Um, and then it's like, so now you, and then, so you're doing that and then it's like, well, you have an accumulation of gift cards and you, and what do you do with those gift cards? But you give them back to the gift store and you say, I'm going to lend these to you because I like your clothes so much that I want you to have, uh, extra, you know, capacity to, to make more clothes, you know, so I'm going to lend you my accrued gift cards to your store, right? Which is what Jeff was saying that people the foreigners that that buy treasuries with the dollars that they've accumulated and it's like at some point though the clothing store if they stop making clothes (laughs) like you can still have an accumulation of gift cards and you can transact with them and especially if it's an efficient means of transacting like if everyone in the world transacts with those gift cards doesn't really you may not even be too upset that you don't have any clothing options to buy today because you have so many other options but if you're just getting gift cards and getting gift cards and there's nothing to buy at the clothing store and everybody else is charging more and more, you know, re- relevant to, or relative to those gift cards and you're saying, geez, these gift cards just can't buy anything anymore. I'm going to just buy whatever I can as soon as I can, which is what Jeff was saying. People just start spending their, their gift cards, um, which are dollars in this scenario. Right. And... I mean, we don't even like produce that much stuff to buy. So you're just going to have like a ton of demand chasing very few goods. I think what will end up happening is probably they'll buy a lot of real estate if they can, because that's something we can actually offer. But that essentially you've just liquidated all your property at that point, which is not a good recipe for like, right you know, long-term production, you know. And then what happens when the property that you own is not income generating because no one's producing it because you still got to produce something. Uh, right. Like if you're, mm-hmm. even if you're a, uh, if, even if it's like a 
a house that you're that you own the person that rents the house from you needs to do something productive or else they they will not be able to get things that are valuable to you without producing something so um so yeah if you if there's a clothing store that issues and issues credit card or gift cards gift cards and the workers of the gift store of the clothing store um they're like first in line they get the most gift cards and they're like someday if we ever need to buy clothes we're set <laughs> but then no one's talking about there's there's no clothes on any of the racks right or like there's one shelf you know <laughs> and that's like uh and it's digital clothes like people are like oh like man those <laughs> digital clothes i i'm glad we have access to buy those um until you need clothes and they're like digital clothes don't don't cut it <laughs> it's not I'll real i'll tell you what yeah. If people need JPEGs, let's go. Eight, mil, eight million dollars a piece. I got them for you. Got you got them. some of those, got Jeff? Those. Jeff, I'm looking for those. You got some? <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for just the thing. <laughs> um, so, all right. So here's the question. Let's let's shift the conversation now. You're talking about uh, scenarios in which people are actually afraid of this um, inflation continuing. Maybe that will be the case. Let's say I'm afraid of that. Um, I'm saying in response to that, people are going to spend all their money right now. People are going to buy assets. Does that mean that's what I should do to protect myself? What should I do if I want to <laughs> make sure that my, the value of my money doesn't go to nothing? Just Excellent buy segue there, yeah. Dale. Just buy the thing that's going to be valuable in five years. Go. <laughs> Easy. Ah. Simple. Simple. Yeah. Uh, Billionaires uh, no, hate him. A- that's a good point. Um, <laughs> a lot of people think Bitcoin is the answer, uh, but we've talked about that probably enough. Hmm. What? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's meat on the bone. Uh, I, so people like to talk about inflation hedges, right? Hedge meaning something that's inversely correlated uh, with whatever thing you're trying to hedge against. So for example, if you wanted to hedge against a stock, you know, you buy something that will move in the exact opposite direction of the price of the stock. So if the price goes the like down, your hedge goes up by the same amount and you're safe. Uh, so that's what a hedge is. Um, I don't think there's actually such thing as an inflation hedge. I don't, I don't think that's actually like there's things that can somewhat be an inflation hedge, but I don't think there's such thing. And the reason for that is um, for money, well, all right, so for inflation, what is inflation measuring? It's the bot, the purchasing power uh, or the change in the person purchasing power of some currency. So for the dollar, if inflation goes up, what we're saying is the purchasing power of that dollar has gone down, which means the price of all other things in aggregate relative to the dollar has gone up. So in order to truly hedge against inflation, you have to own everything else in proportion of exactly how much each thing is going to go up in price relative to the dollar to be perfectly hedged against the dollar. So, 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 so I just act- need to buy a bunch of baskets of goods? <laughs> right. That's what the, the CPI would tell you. But yeah, so I like, because how do you, so in theory, when you hold dollars, 
right? Before the iPhone came out, I was able to buy that with dollars before I even could conceive of a smartphone existing, right? I, I saved money for something that I didn't even know I could buy in the future. So if I wanted to hedge my ability to buy that smartphone, I couldn't even do it because I wouldn't even have the option to buy it at the time I was trying to hedge. So mm. what you can do is buy other stuff, right? That you think will go up, but I don't, I don't think there's such thing as a perfect inflation hedge. If you're trying to just buy one asset, right? Like, so like people yeah. will tell you Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. It's like, well, Bitcoin could go down as the dollar goes down. Yeah. It could go down at the same down. time. Yeah. Right. So, so, so what you're saying down, is, yeah. uh, so just see if I can uh, translate. Well, I think what you're saying sure. is, so, um, what would be an ideal inflation hedge would be if I could somehow have the average of what the desirable goods are at some point in the future. Um, but some or set desirable of, assets. Yeah, sure. But some set of those assets are things that technologies that don't exist today, for example, like the, like the iPhone that you said in that example. Um, so I can't buy things that don't exist yet. Um, so I can't have the average of future of a future basket of goods today. Um, right. and so another thing a lot of people say is a great inflation hedge is real estate. I think Bitcoin we can understand is super volatile. Um, why is, why do you think real estate's not a perfect inflation hedge? Well, it's, it's not that it's like not a partial hedge, like essentially yeah. everything is a partial hedge, right? And real estate is probably one of the more reliable hedges is because like, it's just kind of like. The basis of society right like, it's just, just functional like pro property useful. is yeah. like the first step in in society so it's like it's pretty safe bet right but the thing is you also have to ask yourself is what is the relative price of real estate compared to everything else right so real estate could yeah. be in a bubble while the dollar is in a bubble if they're in a bubble at the same time then the value of the dollar drops with real estate, you haven't hedged yourself against inflation, right? Like the value of real estate relative to everything else can drop and the value of the dollar relative to everything else can also drop. So right. like the value of real estate can go up relative to the dollar, but still not preserve your purchasing power as much as some other asset would have. So really like what it means to be like hedged against inflation is just owning the right things, which is just much easier said than done as far as I'm concerned. So right. like, that's kind of what I'm getting at is people tend to make it out. Like it's easy to hedge against inflation and it's really actually very difficult. And that's why inflation is so nefarious to an economy is because you're constantly trying to protect yourself against it but it's, that takes a lot of like resources to figure out how to do that. Look, if this hurts your head and you don't really know what to do, <laughs> it's easy. Just invest in a hedge fund. They've solved it for you. That's it. Oh, is that what that means? That's what that means. I mean, jokes, joking aside, I think that is actually what they, um, part of the reason that hedge funds uh, like developed 
was because people wanted ways to do what Jeff is saying. Like if you're a smart investor and you have all this money in the stock market, even if you're diversified, stocks are often correlated. And in times of like a crash, um, can all the correlation can be very strong and and can be uh, um, they can all go negative. So people are like, well, we want to we want to invest in something that's anti-correlated to um, to stocks. And so hedge funds got all these creative derivatives to be like, oh, if when this happens, we'll hedge it, your exposure with this and with that. But uh, as Wall Street does, it's just not it's not the money maker. The money maker is is to go in all all in on stocks. So hedge funds are very highly exposed to stocks. In fact, they're like almost anti-hedge for stocks now. <laughs> There's like, they're like leveraged exposure to stocks. So it was just a joke. Hedge fund is not your, is not your answer. But yeah, it's what Jeff is saying is that value, again, value, what we mentioned before, is the hedge. You know, if you have valuable things, then people will buy them in the future. And if you know what people are going to buy in the future, right? If you know what people will, will find valuable, then you can store that. But yeah, it's or the, the means but, to, or create the means to produce them. Right. <laughs> Did you say the right. means to procreate? <laughs> the children will always be. Because yes, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I just feel like it's one of those things that's just easier said than done, and people so yeah. flippantly. No, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm getting very concerned about like the amount of shilling for particular things to protect people from inflation there is out there. True. Because to me, the hard inflation is the hardest thing to protect you. It's protecting yourself against inflation is like no different than trying to get rich. It's just it's difficult, right? Yeah. It's like sure. It's trying to predict w what are the most valuable things. It's so protecting yourself against inflation is what we're all already trying to do all the time just there's more pressure right <laughs> i see so what about this then so if um i think you kind of got to some answer there in this so if you want to hedge against inflation try to own things that you assets that you think will be valuable in the future or desirable in the future um if you had a magic wand and could let's say control the fed or control you know big u.s banks etc um what do you think a solution is at the macro level um uh, at the, the nation state level. Um, and you could wave a magic wand to get rid of in, inflation or to somehow solve these problems. What do you think we need to do as a nation? Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put it on the Fed's balance sheet. No. Um, I mean, it's tough. It's The solution is is not what anyone wants to hear. It's very painful and it's you got to start producing. And how do you start producing? Well, you rein in the easy money and the the like the factors we were we were alluding to before, like paying people not to work and paying people to and subsidizing companies that don't make money and subsidizing um, you know banks that are too big to fail. Like all this stuff is great for jobs. It's great for GDP, right? The the things that politicians pat themselves on the back over, right? All these years for the past, um, I mean. Really, it's really the past 15 years, but you could even make the case that it's been the past like 50 years. But, um, you know, all this stuff that has muted value signals and has exported value signals um, to 
countries that we import goods from. Um, well, how do you reverse that? Well, a lot of people are going to get laid off from uh, malinvestment-fueled companies and malinvestment-fueled opportunities. And the real investment opportunities are the ones where, you know, Americans aren't used to. It's like mining in a coal mine. It's like really hard work, and we don't do that in the, in the U.S. that much anymore. Like hard work and stuff. It's like if the, if the average American worker is ready to do that, then we're, we have no problems, right? We'll just we'll pick up the pickaxes and, and get out there. And, and there's no, you know, we don't have to worry about inflation because even if the dollar goes away, we'll have value. We'll, we'll be able to transact with some other medium of exchange. But um, Americans aren't ready to do that. <laughs> We're, uh, we like not doing that a lot. <laughs> yeah. So John wants labor camps. What do you think, John? <laughs> <laughs> I have a different opinion. No. Um, no, he doesn't. Well, basically... <laughs> <laughs> he told me uh, offline he's thinking the same thing yeah. yeah so it's like what um recessions normally signal when they happen naturally and aren't you know circumvented by the federal reserve they're signaling where people need to go right so for if a company's losing money eventually it's going to have to close and eventually those because it's not sustainable it has to pro profits are sustainable you can if you profit you can keep going if you don't profit then you have to eventually stop because no mm. one's going to just finance that indefinitely so when a company is losing money for long enough they're eventually going to retire that model and everyone who works for it is going to have to do something different right so that's what recessions do is they restructure. We've kind of sold ourselves the idea that we don't have to have recessions. But basically what that means is we're all geniuses and we'll never ever make bad investments. We're on any company we ever start should never fail because, you know, like no one should ever lose a job. But that's just absurd, right? There's going to be bad investments and they're going to need restructured. And sometimes they all happen at the same time and they all need to close down at the same time. That's what a recession is. So that period is painful because the supply constricts because a bunch of people have to now move into different things and that takes time, training, whatever. And so it's not fun, but it's the only way forward. We've been able to circumvent it because the world has trusted the dollar so much for so long that we've been able to keep increasing our trade deficit and importing more and more and more stuff because people still have trusted the dollar for this long. And so our our shelves, like if you go into Walmart, other than the food, nothing, pretty much nothing in there was produced in America, except maybe some of the raw materials. So all of that production, if it's not happening here, we either need to figure out something other than just dollars or debt to send back or we're going to have to make it ourselves. So one or the other is going to have to give eventually unless the world just wants to finance us forever because we're cool or something. Like, I, I you know, eventually something's got to give. I just don't see why the rest of the world, because this people are so used to this, but prior to the 1970s, 
just about everything was made in America. Like if you got stuff made somewhere else, it was considered like cheap and like, you know, you know, people laughed at, oh, that was made in China. Ha ha. That's probably crap. And now it's like, right. that was made in America. Like how? <laughs> it's yeah. like not even feasible. Right. <laughs> Good luck buying a TV made in America. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like impossible. Yeah. I will. I, I do want to add one thing because, you know, on the on its face, what I'm saying is like really bad news. Like it's like it sounds really bad, but the the good thing is it's not bad news. Like it's it's not hard to to reallocate resources. It takes a little bit, you know. It'll take a it'll be it'll be hard for a little bit, you know, for sure. But that's the thing about like free markets. They have a way of assigning value to things that are valuable. The people that are able to produce the valuable things make the decisions because they can go on to make more valuable things and it grows from there, right? So as long as you can just, uh, as long as you can leave it in the hands of the free market, then it'll solve itself relatively quickly. The problem comes and where the real pain comes is when people double down on their interventionist approach and say, well, all of the decisions that led us to this point um, surely were not the problem. The problem was uh, you know, some scapegoat, some group of people, some, you know, they'll, they'll point to someone and External say, these factor, are yeah. the people that um, are the reason that we're, we're, that you're experiencing so much pain. And oh, didn't it, doesn't it suck? You used to not work and you used to get all this nice stuff and now you're not working and you don't have any nice things because they took it all from you. And so once they start doing stuff like that, then um, you get like genocides and, you know, ho- you know Holocaust. Yeah. That oh, sucks. That so what you're saying is maybe one way to put it is that free markets allow nature to take its course and allow businesses that don't create value to fail so that money can be allocated to the businesses that do create value and in doing so uh allow natural selection of value creation and that's how our economy can evolve yeah i think that's a fair way to put it um it's also just, you know, it's about sustain, like the word, a lot of people throw around the word sustainability. Well, profits are sustainable. Deficits are not, right? Because essentially deficits draw down on some resource, whether it's savings, whatever it is, it's going to draw. So it's like the only way to have a sustainable like economy is with profitable um businesses so right now for example like on the s p somewhat like half of the stocks on there are not profitable and have never been (laughs) or at least not in the last year so it's you have a situation where we keep financing and doubling down on bad ideas because we're convinced that we're not wrong like that these were good investments this was you know we didn't nothing was wrong like nothing needs to change no one needs to get retrained no one needs to get laid off so by doubling down and doubling down we're just making the problem worse because we're going deeper and deeper into deficits or you know debt where we're drawing down from the resources we need and not putting them in the right places yeah it's a good way to put it I've said before on this podcast, um, people think that like the worst case scenario is like you lose your job, but really the worst case scenario is 
that you embed yourself in an industry or at a company that's not creating value because you were sold a um, like an incomplete picture of like what your contribution is, right? Everybody wants to contribute. Everyone wants to, you know, be part of the value creating activity. But if you're being subsidized from a real productive sector and your sector is not, then you just think that you're being productive and you, th and you, you know, you get your paycheck, but you've been lied to. And so once reality sets in and, you know, whether, whether it's inflation or, you know, if the government, um, you know, chooses to rein in the, the, the uh, rein in the inflation, which would also cause the same result as we're describing with inflation, um, where, where like the excess lending and the excess credit kind of goes away and you have to be left with like value producing entities. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Back to the coal mines, people. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, I don't think people need to be mining coal, really. I think there's, uh, I think we actually do produce a decent amount of it already. Uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, that was just like, a, that was probably a bad example. Right, it was just a flippant example. Probably but, more like uh, something like farming or like something like. Uh, I don't even think farming. Factories. I think that's another thing we're actually we're pretty we're pretty set on. I would say it's more uh, manufacturing is where we're really. Really run. weak, which we used to be better on. Yeah. All right. Well. And. Go ahead. Uh, say, it's not all bad. Like right. Like, for example, manufacturing. Um, sectors tend to produce a lot of like middle class jobs, right? Like, sure, you're gonna have like yeah. people on the factory floor doing things, but you need a lot of you know, middle management and like upper management type stuff that are good value creating jobs that the, you know, American middle class is kind of built on. And so we've been basically just spending that reputation ever since. It's, I liken it to like, let's say you had a really high paying job. And so you were like a awesome lawyer and making, you know, half a million dollars a year, whatever. And so your credit card limit is like, um, I don't know, $50,000 a month or something crazy. Um, if you lost your job, your credit card company is not going to necessarily know about that. And you could just keep living like your old lifestyle on that credit limit until eventually the credit card company comes to collect and then you're screwed. And like, yeah, that sucks. You're no longer going to not be employed living an awesome lifestyle. But eventually you got to, do something productive and to get back to that lifestyle you're at. But like, it's not like you can't do it. You were doing it before. You'll right. find a way to do it. It's yeah. just, you have to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where I was going, I remembered what my final point or like the point I was leading towards was, um, it's like when the government steps in and, and, you know, has that stance of like, we're going to protect people's jobs in a pandemic or in a recession. We're going to make sure that no, you know, the biggest companies have the most jobs. So we have to make sure they don't fail because that would be the most layoffs. 
right? They're inherently making this promise that it's like, uh, we're not going to let you lose your job, right? And you, and that's just, you've like, they can't do that. They don't produce anything. Yeah. They don't produce, they don't make, or the, they don't create jobs. They, um, they can only reallocate things. So uh, it's a promise that they can't keep. And so when I see people on Twitter saying things like, anybody who thinks that, you know, reigning in inflation through the use of like, like tightened monetary policy from the Federal Reserve, um, you need to be the one to tell me whose job is the first to go. Like, tell me who, you, what sector, what job, what individual firms need to lose employees and tell them, tell those people that they're out of a job. And it's just like, so as Jeff was saying, oh, I'm sure that, I, I'm sure there was uh, the, on the other hand, I'm sure when we were making these policies to make easy money, you were going to the middle class workers, like Jeff was just pointing out and saying, sorry, no more middle class workers in this sector. And sorry, we don't want any middle class work, you know. No, like right. the whole time the promise has been, you're not going to lose your job, but what has the promise been? Oh, we're just going to fund and subsidize these big companies, right? It's like... Uh, yeah, and even I think even even worse than that, it's not, it's not okay, you go tell people who gets to lose their job. It, it's that the market's going to tell people who loses right. their job. Right. It's like you are determining who yeah. loses the job by where you choose to spend your money. Right. Like they're yeah. trying to, je they're trying to put the burden of proof on you. But the reality is like, I don't have to figure that out because that's not my job. Because well, where you choose out. to spend your money is going to determine how that. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. so, yeah. And like to that point, um, John is like, we, we have like empirical evidence about how this works out. When the banks were bailed out in 08, that should have failed. What did all the companies do with those bailout money? They paid all their executives huge bonuses <laughs> and didn't make any good decisions with that money yeah. because that's the reason they're in that position because <laughs> they make bad decisions. Right. right. If you keep giving money to those people, that's insane. Right. It's foolish. But I, I feel like that's by design. But <laughs> All you need to do is be rich and powerful. That's right, a good inflation right. hedge. <laughs> right. <laughs> True. <laughs> I can't. Any final thoughts, guys? I think we're coming up on seventy uh, minutes. I think that's all. Yeah, I think it's a good way to end it. Get rich and powerful, and you don't have to worry too much about inflation. Yeah. Well, I, I guess point. I'll say that. Well, we we didn't mention it this whole episode. I think gold is a relatively stable uh, store value. That I would say. It's not going to make you rich, but if you have some wealth, you should definitely consider allocating a portion to a metal that is the most important or like the most useful metal on the periodic table. But, Do I need to buy physical gold or can I just invest in a gold fund on Robinhood? I mean, physical is probably safer. Yeah, whatever your risk tolerance. Unless, unless you think you're going to get robbed, but yeah. Like the only thing with ETFs is like the USO problem, whereas like, you, like if they're competent and they're getting the gold or whatever they need to do to back their ETF, then it right. might be all right. But like, but you're probably not doing the research. That counterparty to know, risk. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll add one final thought to what John was saying is. Well, before you said what he mentioned in USO, that was that's the oil ETF. Oil. Yeah. yeah. That was. Um, 
it i mean the only way they don't store oil they have oil futures and the oil right. future derivative product they were using was you know over leveraged on a single oil product that um wasn't able to be delivered that's it's largely the reason people think uh why oil price went negative last year but um i mean with the gold etf with uh you know gld they at least claim to hold gold in a warehouse, so it's a little different. Right, but all I'm saying is you're, there's always that risk is they don't have the gold they say they have. Yeah, right. That's fraud and that's illegal, but people do illegal things all the time, so <laughs> like you can't just necessarily go off of that. Uh, but what I will say is, um, you know, I while I do think gold is a really cool metal, I, I'm not going to like say for sure it's going to preserve your value. Like theoretically, let's the apocalyptic scenario. The best thing to have is like canned food and, and like uh, distilled water, you know, and like there's not a lot you can really do with gold in that situation. So I'm just saying you can imagine scenarios where certain assets don't pan out. So I, I don't yeah. think anything's like a guarantee. Right. And so I, I'll never put a guarantee on anything, but I, what I am pretty confident of, is the dollars going to continuously lose value? So just holding cash is probably not a smart right. thing to do. So cash is trash. Well, <laughs> I now live in a New York City apartment, so I don't have room to fill it with uh, food and distilled water. So I'm going to line it in gold, and I should be safe. Yeah, dude, you yeah. can put it in the sock drawer. <laughs> That's right. Dude, like a gold coin like this is like, Two grand. Yeah. <laughs> so That's I don't true. think I don't think you'll be lining your house anytime soon. <laughs> you don't know my financial situation. <laughs> if you have that much cash, I'm concerned. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. I was listening to something that was it was a while ago, but a guy was saying that there's like a loophole where you could like build a house with gold bricks and like the house construction is like right off is like a write off. It's like it's like just like buy gold on like like uh an elite. And then it'll just them. sink into the earth. <laughs> Way too fucking heavy. Yeah, it'll just be like a billion dollars. <laughs> Shit, my gold house is sinking. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. I like it. All, for me. all right. Thanks for tuning in folks. If you're still listening, you're crazy. Later. <laughs>